0: Well, we are delighted to be returning once again to one of the most familiar and beloved uh, stories connected with Christmas, though not one that is often explored in depth uh, before the day of Christmas. Uh, The story of the Magi, the wise men that came from the East uh, is one that is traditionally uh, read after the Christmas celebration uh, because the actual events described there occur uh, after the birth of the child, but the story itself is so powerful in what it reveals about the nature and the significance of the Christmas story itself that we decided this year to take a look at it a little early. And we're in week three now of this exploration. We will continue it one more week next Sunday morning, even though it's Christmas Eve. Next Sunday morning is part four of this uh, series we've called Magical. And then in the afternoon uh, and the evening, we will have Christmas Eve services. So, separate content, uh, but just want to give you a heads up on that. If you're interested in experiencing part four, do show up next Sunday morning. We would love to have you uh, enjoy the conclusion uh, with us. How many of you have ever heard of a television series called House of the Dragon? House of the Dragon. For those of you who have successfully missed it, uh, House of the Dragon is the award-winning prequel to the HBO blockbuster series, Game of Thrones. And as your self-appointed source on the intersection of popular culture and Christian theology, uh, I want to tell you just a little bit about this uh, series, because last week was a extremely big one for those who are fans of this whole storyline. On December the 4th, a spell-binding trailer dropped for season two of House of the Dragon. And guess what? The trailer tells us that people are still fighting over who gets to sit on the Iron Throne. Now, for those who are uh, familiar with the lore of the Game of Thrones uh, House of the Dragon series, you will know that the Iron Throne is a very important symbol. Uh, the throne itself is made up of some 1,000 swords taken from the bodies of 1,000 vanquished warriors, warriors that had been defeated in battle by the great uh, King Aegon the Conqueror. The Iron Throne represents the supreme seat of power across all of the kingdoms in this uh, mythology. The person who sits on that particular throne bows to no one else. They have their will done consistently, and they are the center of the kingdom. Now, it's interesting to note that way back in 2014, Queen Elizabeth II of England was uh, given an opportunity to sit in a life-size replica of the Iron Throne, and she turned it down. Curious, maybe it's only those who have some sense of, of what a throne really means that would have the wisdom to know that there are some thrones that we are not meant to occupy. But for so many other people, Finding our seat on the throne becomes a way of life. When we open up the Bible today to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, we meet a king who is severely, the text says, disturbed. And you can open in your Bibles to that text with me if you would this morning. The New Revised Standard Version of the Scripture reads, and I quote, When King Herod heard the Magi's report about the birth of Jesus, he was frightened. The uh, NIV version says he was disturbed, but the NRSV tells us that it was not just shaken, he was scared. Now, now what could possibly be uh, fear-inspiring about the birth of a baby? Why would the... A central event of Christmas, in other words, fill a strong man, like Herod, with fear. And more personally, why could it disturb you and me? Why could Christmas actually be a disturbing thing for you and me? I posed this question before, but it seems so appropriate to the series that we're in that I want to ask it again. What, if anything, is scary about the babe of Bethlehem? To get at a partial answer to that question, let me just refresh your memory about this man, Herod. And the first thing you need to know about Herod is that he was neither weak nor stupid, he was far from either of those things. Uh, in a day that was even more politically tumultuous than ours, which is saying something given all that's going on in our time, but in a period of time that was, that was as conflicted and divisive and uh, prone to sudden changes as ours is, Herod managed to hold on to the throne of Judea for 40 years, for 40 years. Imagine any world leader, other than Queen Elizabeth perhaps, who keeps the throne for four decades, four decades. But Herod did that. How did he do that? Well, the answer is by managing extremely well, both down and up. Uh, This is how he did it. Uh, Through a skillful blend of popular public works projects, through a, a number of strategic assassinations, Uh, Through ruthless military suppression of the people at times, Herod managed to keep the revolutionary tendencies of the Jewish people in check. He managed down very, very effectively. But he also managed up extremely well. Because when he would build these great public works... Herod would very often name those building projects after whoever was in power in Rome or whoever was about to take power there. And it gave him a wonderful reputation at the seat of power. In fact, the Roman Senate was so impressed by Herod that they conferred upon him an official title, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. So, what do you suppose Herod felt when a group of magi, highly educated scholars from the East, suddenly arrived in Jerusalem and asked, I quote, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? If the wise men were right, then the birth of this baby seriously threatened Herod's preferred seat in life. It meant that a day was coming in spite of the fact that he'd held on to power a very long time. A day was out there when Herod would no longer be calling the shots, when the resources of his kingdom would no longer be his to spend as he chose, when he would no longer have it in his power, who could live or who would die. Then he would have to give up the iron throne that he had occupied for decades. No wonder Herod was disturbed. No wonder he was upset, frightened even. The question is, are you and am I? Because when we really think about the implications of Christmas, it can be a little bit disturbing. It should disturb us. I will confess to you that that, that there is a tendency within me, perhaps perhaps you can relate to some of this, uh, to to view Jesus as a helpful advisor to my current administration. I am open to his suggestions, right? If he wants to suggest something, I will think about it. Um, It's always nice to have somebody that I can call on in a pinch. it's nice to be able to think that that Jesus is there when when I might need him, when I'm in trouble. I can spare an hour a week at least for a good spiritual consultant like Jesus. But that's not what Christmas is about. That is not the picture of Jesus' identity and role that Christmas gives us. The birth of Jesus means that somebody who has arrived in history, who, is, who not only wants to but is um, truly appropriately the one who should occupy the throne of my life. Christmas means that the rightful king has come. And, and from what Jesus makes clear in his teaching as he grows up, is that he wants to occupy the big chair of our lives. He wants to direct the use of our resources. He wants to guide the way that we treat and talk to other people. He, he regards every thought and, and every sphere of our lives as either a loyal possession of his or else as a yet to be recovered part of his kingdom. One of the great Dutch statesmen of an earlier era, Abraham Kuyper, said, there is no sphere of life over which Jesus does not spread his hands and say, mine. It belongs to me. So does that register with us? Because if we're wise like the Magi, then we will realize that Christmas threatens the power and the position, the iron throne that we as people sometimes want to hold on to all to ourselves. Herod got that. Herod really figured that out. And, and he understood more as well. No dummy, Herod understood that the birth of the Christ child also challenges our pursuit of prestige. His meeting with the Magi made that really clear to him. It was not a magical moment for Herod, this encounter with the Magi. I mean, picture the scene as the Bible unpacks it for us. These visitors come shuffling in to the throne room. Uh, They come into the throne room of not just any king, but of Herod the Great. Historians tell us that that was actually the title that Herod preferred, I remember years ago, my dad was elected to the New York State Board of Regents. And and it's a very old office that dates back to the founding of the state. And and so the regents are a very, very powerful group of people in the state of New York. They oversee all of the educational system, all of the licensed professions of the state. And we asked our father at that time, dad, um, what should we call you? I mean, do we call you regent? Meyer, and he thought for a moment, he says, you call me Your Excellency, (laughs) and technically that was the term. That was the honorific title that belonged to regents, Your Excellency. Now, my dad did not insist on that around the dinner table because he understood there were thrones and there were thrones in this world. Herod was not joking. He said, call me Herod the Great. So these magi show up. But instead of coming into the throne room with, oh, your majesty and oh, your royal magnificence, oh, your greatness, these guys just can't seem to do anything but talk about Jesus. We observed his star at its rising, they say. And, and we have come to pay him homage, to pay him honor, to worship him. So that's the second frightening thing about Christmas, if we really think about it. Something has happened in history that must necessarily, if we truly get it, move the focus of our lives off of seeking to receive prestige and, and praise for ourselves and on to paying homage and honor to Jesus. Think of all of the energy and the money and the time that goes into clothes and objects and pictures and posts that are consciously or unconsciously aimed at gaining the admiration of other people. Think of the aggregate energy and money that goes into this in our society or the expenditure in our own lives to get people to look at us and and, and admire us in some way. I don't know about you, but I know I've told this story once before, but I can be a little bit like the kid who asked his mom to play darts with him one day, and and the little boy said, Mom, I'm going to stand here and throw the darts, and you stand over there and say, wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful, honey. How many of us live to hear affirmations and accolades spoken towards us rather than primarily living to bring praise to the name of the one who is wonderful, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God? How many of us do this? If you and I are in sync with the true spirit of Christmas, I'm suggesting, then we're going to become a lot more concerned over time about seeing Jesus' star rise than with getting our star on the door. Uh, we're going to become much less focused on making an excellent impression on other people for the sake of our good name than, than for the sake of His good name. And the way our treatment of others can actually reflect glory back to Him. If we understand Christmas, we will will welcome even the fact that not everybody is into us. I remember meeting with one of the great uh, scholars of the American church uh, movement, uh, Lyle Schaller, when I first moved here many years ago. I sat in his living room and I listened to his advice. I said, what should I do? How should I lead this church? And he says, well, one thing I wanna suggest you do, Dan, is that you should should definitely have multiple worship services and you should have multiple other people preaching, not just you. And I said, tell me more about that. Why would that be true? He says, because not everybody likes you. (laughs) Not everybody's into you. They need to hear other voices. Good advice. And what a, what a gift it is to be invited even to recognize that we're not the center of all things and that we need to die to self maybe even more. It's a lifelong project to learn to deny self, as Jesus said. But dying to self is always a little bit scary, especially when we've been oriented for so long to getting the focus of others upon ourselves. There's another thing about Christmas that is disturbing as I think about it as well. The coming of Jesus at Christmas threatens our power and position. It challenges the pursuit of prestige that we are so often inclined to, to go upon. But what may be hardest to take, reason number three, is that what happened at Bethlehem, if we really understand it, shatters our perceptions about the presence of or the absence of God. Back in the first century AD, the Jewish people, especially the educated ones, figured that they had God's uh, MO, his modus operandi, his way of working down. They they believed he was was mostly active in ancient times. (laughs) That was their focus. Uh, and there was all these texts in the Bible that said, remember, remember, remember. So they, they, they thought the focus of, of a relationship with God was on looking back at what he had done in ancient times. They felt that his primary interest was whether people went to religious gatherings <coughs> and observed religious rituals. God was clearly into that, they believed. And they thought he was very, very high and mighty. They wouldn't even say the name of God. He was so high and mighty which was also another way of saying not particularly involved here where I live. Not particularly involved. Mostly did things back then, mostly interested in religious rituals, pretty distant, if not disappeared. And a lot of people still view God this way. Still think of him in this way. That's why what happened in that manger is so provocative. Presbyterian author Frederick Beekner once put it like this, after Christmas, those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he might appear and to what lengths he might go, to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he could descend in his wild pursuit of humanity. For if holiness, writes Speakner, if holiness and the power and the majesty of God were, were, were present in the birth of a peasant child, then there is no place or time so lowly, so earthbound, but that God in his holiness can be present there too. And this means there's no place we can hide from him. There's no place where we're safe from His power to break into and to recreate the human heart. Christmas can tap into some of our deepest fears if we acknowledge them. Our power and position are threatened our pursuit of prestige is challenged, our perceptions about how God works and what he'll do next and what he'll be present in, this is shattered. And so it's understandable, if you think about it, that that somebody who got this, who appreciated this, would be very tempted to try and keep Christmas contained, sort of like the box that we, that we keep our ornaments in. We put them up for a little while, we put them back in the box, we slide them under the bed or into the closet. We regard Christmas as something we might take out and view briefly for its sentimental significance without thinking too deeply about its life-changing significance, and then we just put it in a closet for the rest of the year. In a sense, that's what Herod was doing as we'll explore on the last Sunday of the month, when he ordered the genocide that he did. he, He was trying to contain the danger of Christmas. But you know, the Bible teaches that fear is not always a bad thing. In fact, the writer of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Yes, of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, the Scripture says. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, it needs interpretation in our time. It carries two senses. One is a sense of appropriate terror before a God who so belongs in our place on the throne, who's so worthy of our utter homage or tribute, who who so mysteriously does show up where we would not expect Him to, But there's another connotation to that phrase, the fear of the Lord. And as biblical people understand it, it also means a sense of wondrous awe at having a God like this, a God who is really God. And so let me just close today by by trying to share with you the wondrously awesome news (laughs) The good news of Christmas. First of all, since Jesus really is the King, the good news is that we do not have to carry the weight of the throne. How many of you have seen that sculpture? It stands in front of Rockefeller Center in New York City. It's a a sculpture of Atlas holding up the whole world. And if you are ever, ever there up close to that statue, you note the tautness of every sinew in his body. You see the bend of his legs under the weight. You see the hunch of his back trying to hold up the world. It's, it's like the way some of us feel too much of the time. Like we're carrying so much. It's tough to be king or queen, to to have the weight of your whole family, to have the weight of your workplace, to have the weight of, of your finances, to have the weight of this increasingly troubled, broken world, to, to carry. Do you feel it when you watch the television? Do you feel the weight of this world on your shoulders sometimes? But just across the street from that statue is St. Patrick's Cathedral. Just across the street. It's right there in front of Atlas. All he needs to do is just roll the globe off for a moment, walk across the street, open the door, and go in. And there in the holy hush of that space, if he wandered around, he would find another statue, a much smaller one. And this statue, I couldn't get permission to show it to you, couldn't get the copyright, but this statue is of a child. And the child is is just standing there. The child has a a, a look of, of peace on his face, and the child has a stance of ease and grace. And upon the child's outstretched hand, balanced confidently as if it was something that was, e- was easy for him to hold. It was the most natural and comfortable thing possible. Right there in the child's hand is the globe of the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. And the child is Jesus. That child is Jesus, and he can handle the weight. Give him the throne. Give him the throne. You'll be so delighted with the way he handles the job of carrying what you can't, of making your life what it can only be with his strength at work within it. Secondly, since Jesus is really the one person who is worthy of of homage or honor, the good news is that we we can really freely relinquish the exhausting struggle to prove our value by winning prestige in the eyes of other people. Wise men and women always know that the homage belongs to Him anyway. And yet the awesome truth is that Jesus' very coming into this world is God's way of saying to you, like that parent to that, to that little child throwing darts, it's God's way of saying, I think you're wonderful. I think you're wonderful. And the eyes of the only person, frankly, whose, whose opinion of you is going to count in the end. You have already been esteemed, you've already been deemed worthy of laying down his very life for. That's a pretty big estimation of value, don't you think? That he would give up his life for you, leave the glories of heaven, enter this world, walk the dusty trails of life, share the human experience and die on a cross for you. Why would we ever worry again about how many likes we're getting on our our social media pages? Why would we ever worry again when somebody pointed out a flaw or a failure of ours that it's probably actually there? Why would we ever be concerned about the valuation other people make when He has said, Wonderful. I love you. So forget about whether your star is rising or falling right now, forget about it. Put your efforts into pointing other people towards Christ's glory, that others might also receive the priceless gift of an irrevocable esteem that comes from knowing Him. And finally, I invite you to think with me about this. The birth of Jesus shows us that God is unpredictably more present than we might think. The good news is that we never need worry that we might be in a place where God can't meet us, where He can't show up. There is no dark stable, there is no dung-filled place in life that the light of the world cannot enter into. He can meet you in your financial crisis. He can meet you in your declining years. He can be born in you in a moment of arrogant success. He can enter into and change the relationship that that you're experiencing right now as dying or dead. He can come alongside of you in your illnesses. He He can be there with you and redeem and give purpose to these next years of your life. He can renew your strength if you're feeling weary. He can give you the courage to persevere till your winter gives way to His spring. Only one thing is required. To have him enter in, you've got to want him to come in. You've got to want it like Walter did. Walter was just nine years old. And, and he was one of those kids that was on the awkward side, we would say. One of those children that other kids stayed away from or made fun of in school. But that particular year, Walter was given a part by his teacher in the Christmas pageant. And, and his mom, knowing that, that, that Public activities were sometimes tricky for Walter. His mom worried a lot about how the Christmas pageant would go. And so when she finally went to the school that day and and she was there watching her son, she was anxious. She was clenching her hands. She was nervous that he would forget his line or just do the wrong thing at at the wrong time. And at long last, Mary and Joseph came trundling out onto the stage. And they went up to a building, an inn, and they knocked on the door. And after what felt like a little overly long pause, the door opened up, and there stood Walter, the innkeeper. And Mom held her breath, held her breath, but she had nothing to worry about. Walter remembered his line, and, and his voice rang out loudly and clearly, there's no room at the inn, he said. And right on cue, pregnant and faithful Joseph, hung their heads and turned around and walked away. But what was not in the script was what happened next. Everybody could see Walter's face begin moving. They could see a look of fear it looked like. He was disturbed in some way. The kind of look that was something sort of between horror at what he'd just done and terror at what he was about to do and awe that he had the chance to do it. And suddenly Walter cried out, wait, come back. You can have my room." And I believe the angels sang. And I know that grace broke into that school. And I believe that Christmas, the real Christmas, in some poetic and beautiful spiritual way, came again in that Christmas pageant As it can come again for you and for me, if we'll only say, come in, Lord. You can have my room. You can have your throne. Come be the center for me. I choose to put my faith in you. Please pray with me. Dear God, that would be magical. It would be magical if Christmas really came for us. If the birth of that child was the beginning of something awesome and new and fresh and hopeful in us. So help us to live more wisely and creatively than Herod managed to. Stop us from trying to box up or banish the fearsome implications of your arrival in our kingdom. Instead, turn our terror into joy-filled awe, Lord, at what it can mean for us when we give you the throne, when we focus our lives on rendering homage to you alone, when we look for your presence in the dark places of our life and expect we'll find you there. You who are the light of this world, shine upon us. We beg you, Lord, as we put our faith afresh in you, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.